The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Something festive about gathering before a public holiday. That's a deep archetype in our minds, isn't it? Even if we don't have any particular plans tomorrow, there's something spacious about a holiday. And even if you're retired or not working for whatever reason, it's still that flavor. And then it begs the question, like, well, what's in the way of having that more spacious, relaxed mind all the time? Well, our, our ideas about things. You know, we have these ideas, and then the ideas are quite oppressive. Oh, I, tomorrow I have to do this, or... One of the things we discover uh, in being present with things as they are, this mindfulness practice, is we discover that sense of space and that actually it's always available. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, is the present moment as a refuge. And different teachers um, over the years have made a big deal about this. Some of you know Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, and one of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's early books, The Miracle of Mindfulness. And it almost sounds cultish when people talk about the present moment being this amazing thing, and then we can strive hard to realize that special thing about the present moment and feel disappointed when we feel like we come up empty-handed. So it can be problematic. But one way or another, we need to wean ourselves off of refuges that aren't actually refuges, like having big cars is not a refuge. It may be nice to have a big four-wheel drive car. I'm not saying they're bad. But ultimately, it's not a refuge. Even being healthy and strong and youthful, that's not a refuge. So then we get these teachings, you know, we bump up or run into these teachings that say, well, you know, the present moment is actually your refuge. It's the only refuge of any value. And then it just seems so ridiculous, like, I've been in the present moment my whole life, and if it was satisfying as a refuge, I wouldn't be so neurotically trying to find a refuge. So... I guess one of two things is possible. Either you're right that the present moment isn't a refuge, or we don't really know what the present moment is. And even the the words present moment actually can be an obstacle. Because when we have that concept, that language-based concept of the present moment, then it's very easy to think, oh, I I get it, I, I know the present moment. Because conceptually, it's relatively easy to get. Like, present moment means I'm not thinking about the past and I'm not thinking about the future. But thinking about the present moment isn't the present moment. It's a thought. Now the thought is arising in the present moment, but when the mind is caught up in the content of that thought, like, oh yeah, this is the present moment, then we're not actually in the present moment. Or we're not, the heart isn't open to the way that it is. That's what we mean by mindfulness of the present moment or awareness of the present moment 
we mean that the heart or the mind is awake. And in order to be awake, the mind or the heart has to be unconditioned. It's not being conditioned by our thoughts about things. Sometimes we use the phrase unformed. The mind is unformed or the heart is unformed or it's free from the oppressiveness, the container of our ideas about things. Some of you know once a quarter um, we get together on Sunday morning and we do this ancient tradition of reciting the three refuges and five precepts. And the three refuges really have to do with this opening to what's unformed or unconditioned. And it's just talked about as taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And it's sort of like there's a ordinary understanding of that. Oh yeah, the Buddha is this guy who was a teacher 2,500 years ago, and the Dharma or the Dhamma are the teachings of that person, and the Sangha are those people who are following these teachings and who have learned something from these teachings. And that's the surface level of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. But the more important level is in terms of opening to the here and now, opening to the present moment. So here Buddha means this awakened quality of the heart. So right now, even if you're a bad human being, even if you're brand new to practice or whatever, whoever we are, right now there is Buddha here because Buddha actually means awake. It doesn't refer to that particular person. It was just a title they gave him because he seemed to exhibit a lot of wakefulness. So they called him Buddha, you know, the one who's awake. But this awakened quality, this knowing quality is here and now. But often or almost always unrecognized and basically not respected, not seen as something significant, even though it's quite amazing. It is the direct manifestation of the mystery right here and now. Like we think, it doesn't seem so mysterious because we tell ourselves a story, I'm knowing. Right? We say that, like, I'm here, I'm knowing this. And it sort of, like, undermines any interest in the knowing because it would be too embarrassing to think we don't know who we are. So we never bother, right? There is knowing, and we just say, oh, it's me knowing, and then that's the end of it. So in our practice, we, we call it Buddha, we call it wakefulness, and it's the great mystery. And what is that inherent wakefulness, that inherent knowing of this mind or heart do? Well, it knows the way things are. That's dharma, or dhamma. Dhamma means the way it is. So the Buddha knows dharma. The one who knows the wakefulness knows, wakes up to the way that it is now. And in that beautiful integrity of Buddha knowing dharma comes sangha, these beautiful qualities of somebody in one moment, in this moment, in alignment with the way it is, knowing the way that it is, and responding out of that integrity. When we're knowing the way that it is, it doesn't mean there are no uh, filters to which the mind is knowing. 
Like we have so many ideas of who I am, who you guys are, what's right, what's wrong. All these filter our experience. We're massaging it to fit our notion of things. But that's not Buddha knowing Dharma. That's an ordinary experience of being in the world from a, let's say, a self-centered or ego point of view. But in a moment of mindfulness, the mind is liberated. It's free from those limitations. So it's, we say it's Buddha. It's that inherent wakefulness, clearly knowing the way that it is on in an unbiased way. Now, it doesn't mean that the mind isn't affected by the past, its past conditioning, but the mind is recognizing the past conditioning for what it is. It's just past conditioning. It's like, you know, let's say we've developed a prejudice in our life because when we were young, we had these certain experiences and then we generalize them unconsciously in our mind and now we live with these assumptions that these kind of people are this way and these kind of people are that way. People who have the BBC British accent are so much more intelligent and those people who have this other kind of way of speaking, they're not so intelligent. And we just... But now, being more awake and we're in a moment and we hear that sound of the BBC voice, we also are aware of how the mind is putting a particular spin oh that person knows what they're saying what they're talking about so we're not confused by the conditioning by the prejudices of the mind this is how we overcome prejudice it's not that we get rid of it you can't really undo the conditioning but you can wake up to it you can see it and not be confused by it so taking refuge in the present moment is really beginning to recognize this wakefulness. You know, you, I'm sure many of you have heard me say, it's like a mirror that effortlessly reflects what's in front of it. So like right now, this isn't theoretical, of course, right now, the heart, the Buddha, is here, reflecting whatever arises, reflecting the sound of my voice, reflecting your own reaction to the sound of my voice, reflecting what's being seen, felt in the body, smelt and tasted, all of that is being known. And you could ask, well, known by what? But we don't know. Because whatever we imagine is doing the knowing, that's just something being known too. Like we can conceive of the knower, like we can call it Buddha, for example. But Buddha, the term, isn't Buddha, the knowing. So we have this amazing wakefulness that illuminates the way that it is. Without the Buddha, there's no Dharma. But you also need Dharma in order to have a Buddha, right? If there's nothing to wake up to, if there's nothing to know, it doesn't matter if there's wakefulness. So we have these this dynamic of Buddha knowing Dhamma. And when that's happening, when Buddha is knowing Dharma, when the one that knows, the heart that knows, is knowing things as they are, in a direct, immediate way, then we could say that the self-centered bias is gone. If it arises, it's just an object being known. So if somebody triggers some of my neurotic conditioning, if I'm in that really balanced place of integrity, then the Buddha knows that neurotic emotional pattern that's been triggered. Oh, defensiveness. It's just defensiveness being triggered, and it's like this. And so we don't have to act it out neurotically. We might just say, hey, I'm feeling really defensive right now. 
maybe we can pick this conversation up later. Or maybe we don't need to say it out loud, but we just know that we're feeling a little insecure, or a little defensive, and so we're just careful about not assuming that that actually is how it is. Because sometimes, you know, the different things that we're sensitive to, sometimes it is appropriate to bring it into the, the moment or into the world. And other times, the conditioning, the pattern that's gotten triggered really doesn't have much to do with what's going on right now. It's much more about the conditioning or the experiences we've had in the past. And it doesn't need to be brought into the moment. It's like we see a dog and we get really frightened because we were terribly bit by a dog when we were four years old. But this dog is very cute and friendly, you know? But all that fear is coming up, but we don't need to run away. But we're still going to feel, feel that response because of the previous conditioning we've had. But now there's my, there can be mindful awareness of that, those waves of fear, mistrust of the dog. The Buddha was once asked, why are your students so peaceful and serene? And he answered, they do not lament the past or crave for the future. Therefore, they are peaceful and serene. And another time there was a, a monk that was really into living alone. It's interesting, the way that the monastic community, both the nuns and monks, operated is they would do some things as a community, and they would do some things uh, living more or less independently. So often, for example, uh, they would be sleeping in their own area, maybe a hundred meters, a couple hundred meters away from the other closer people out in the woods. But then early in the morning they'd gather and they would walk into the local nearest village or town and they'd collect their food for the day. They'd walk and generally just stand in a nice line and people might bring out some rice or some curry or whatever, put it in their bowls and they'd go to the next house. And when they had enough, they'd walk back into the woods and they might eat together even. They might talk about their practice a little bit. And then they'd go back to their little place under a tree or maybe a simple shelter out in the woods. And they'd spend, you know, the afternoon and evening and through the night alone. And there was one guy who really liked to be alone all the time. And the younger monk, monks went to the Buddha and, and said, hey, there's this guy who really knows or really thinks he knows how to live alone. And they, they described how the, this monk was practicing. These new monks did, these younger monks did. And the Buddha said, well, well go tell that monk that I'd like to see him. <coughs> and so the, eventually the monk comes and sees the Buddha and pays his respects to his teacher, the Buddha. And the Buddha asks him, you know, tell me how you've been practicing. And he, he basically says what the younger monks had told them, told the Buddha, you know, that he really keeps away from other people and, and he really sees the value in that seclusion. And then the Buddha says something, well, let me tell you about a better way to live alone. And this is the sutta. This is uh, translated by Thich Nhat Hanh. I will teach you what is meant by knowing the better way to live alone. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, 
The practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. So this is this Buddhist teaching, like instead of thinking the way to get away from the craziness of the world is to go off to a cave, which, you know, there are some real advantages. I'm sure many of you have experienced directly the advantage of getting away out of the city, away from your home, backpacking to a retreat center, quiet place in the country. Definitely advantageous. Nature generally is, has a very healing effect on our neurotic minds. But ultimately, the seclusion we need is here and now. It's really a, a paradigm shift here and now. It doesn't actually depend on different circumstances. It's a different way of being in the here and now. And that's really what the Buddha is pointing to in this. So in the here and now, like that's, that means you and me here and now, we don't have to pursue the past. We don't have to think about the future. The past doesn't exist. However much it seems real, four o'clock today or some interaction you had today, it seems like it's actually back there somewhere, but it does not exist anywhere. We have memories. Those memories are just thoughts here and now. The past does not exist behind us, nor does the future exist in front of us as we imagine it does. We have a thought now, and in a sort of funny way, we throw it out there, and then it appears like there's a future out there. But there's just a thought here about something we're calling the future. Past doesn't exist. The future has not arrived. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day one who knows the better way to live alone. So what we're really interested in seclusion from is the different ways our thinking mind constructs a reality that we then inhabit. Like if I have, if I'm in the midst of giving this talk, if I'm constructing a reality that you all like this talk, um, think I'm a great teacher, or the opposite, don't like this talk, think I'm a lousy teacher. If I construct either of those realities and start to inhabit that space, then that's literally my reality. When we're inhabiting those constructions of our mind, we have formed a reality, we inhabit that reality, and the experience we have then is a function of the reality that was constructed. Now we can unconstruct that reality, but the unconstruction, the deconstruction comes about not by constructing something, but by just letting it fall apart. How do we let it fall apart? We learn how to come into the present moment. This is our way. This is the practice. That's why we use things like being aware of the body sitting, being aware of the body walking, being aware of breathing in, being aware of breathing out, being aware of hearing, being aware basically of any activity, if we open to it completely, the mind abandons its deep habit of constructing a story about what's happening, what's good, what's bad, who I am, who you are, 
it abandons that story, that storytelling or that construction, and it's just being instead of constructing. And we start to notice, or immediately notice, a lot of freedom in those unconstructed, unformed states that we experience from time to time. They're what we say, they're liberating. But it's not that it's such a special place, because that would be like we constructed a really special place, and now we want to hold on to it. It's special because we didn't construct it. It's the natural state, or the ordinary state, or the unconstructed or unconditioned, unformed state. And where is that? What's already here. That's why it's so liberating. That's why we say it's unconstructed or unconditioned. Because there isn't anybody who needs to do anything to make it so. It's just a matter of a human being ceasing doing something. When we cease constructing stories that we inhabit, then we experience it. So like one thing, some uh, teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, a Western Buddhist monk, would say, just as a thought experiment, but you could do this systematically where you just notice thoughts and you notice when the thought ends. Now normally, we don't notice when a thought ends because we already have begun the second thought or the next thought. But there's always a gap, how could there not be, between one thought and the next thought. And if we start to get interested in the little breaks, those give you a little flavor of the unformed. Before your mind defines that moment of the unformed, what is the experience of the unformed? So just you could just do an example. Now, like you could, we can all, let's do this a couple times, have just repeat a, a very appropriate thought. You know, it's Wednesday evening. That's it. No one will argue with that. Now, of course, that thought has actually, in, in the terms of the unformed, it has no meaning. It only has meaning within the world of our thoughts about things. Wednesday, you know, when you think about fundamental reality, Wednesday has no meaning. But it seems like it has a lot of meaning, right? Because it's the day before Thursday, the holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just say the word or the, the sentence, you know, today's Wednesday, a couple times. And each time you're going to intentionally think that thought, but then just let the thought come in your mind, and then it will end. And then get real interested in that moment, and it has to be very quick. That moment it ends. And then, after a few seconds, just think that thought again, and then notice that, and we'll just, we'll just take a minute or so and do this now, okay? And it's okay if you think other thoughts, just notice when they end how that is. It's interesting how 
quiet the mind gets when you actually look at thoughts. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but you might just have gotten a little sense that uh, or conventional reality, it's very dependent on this thread of narration or inner dialogue sustaining itself. We need to keep repeating to ourselves what the heck's going on in order to maintain the reality we exist in, that we live in. But we can cultivate something that really balances our lives out, which is beginning to bring in experiences or have experiences of the unformed. And it it doesn't mean we can't have form, like can't run into somebody we know, and then sort of, for that period of conversation, sort of live in that shared meaning that we were constructing together. Oh, yeah, we went to elementary school together. Do you remember when, you know, Mrs. Burdock said this in the class? And, and it's like we can have that interaction because we're able to generate the story that, you know, I have this past, and in that past I was this, and I did that, and you were there, I remember you, and we had this experience together. But then when that's over, then we're really letting it cease. You know, like, just like we let Wednesday afternoon, maybe we didn't do it consciously, but it ceased. And Tuesday, of course, is completely gone. And Monday, and all my early 50s, and all my 40s, and 30s, and 20s, and teens, and all that is gone. So part of what experiences of the present moment as a refuge do is that it really helps us appreciate the formed. By understanding the unformed, we have a much healthier relationship with the form, whatever meaning the mind is constructing in any moment. We know how to use it in an appropriate way. We're not making it more than it is, and we're not trying to get rid of it. When we're always caught in the form, it always feels oppressive, so we have this neurotic relationship with the form, like our ideas about things. We both are quite dependent on them, and we're feeling quite oppressed by it, like our ideas about ourselves, or our ideas about our partners. You know, it's really oppressive, our ideas, and yet we can't let go of them because it's what we think is real, who I am, what is really happening here. So we're in this terrible difficult place. But the more we have experiences of the present moment, the unformed, the great space of here and now, the more then we know how to take up the form, you know, the shared meaning that we have, and hold it lightly and appropriately, and put it down then when it's not useful. And that's really what we need. All this fundamentalism, all this attachment to our opinions, <coughs> these judgments of being better than or worse than or the same as, and all this sort of stuff we get stuck on is because of this imbalance. We don't understand the unformed. So, like we did this last Sunday at the quarterly gathering, I mentioned a few minutes ago at the beginning of the talk, that we get together once a quarter and we take refuge in the Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing Sangha. And just because you didn't come to that that recitation on Sunday morning, it doesn't mean that we don't also need to take refuge. This is really the at the essence of the practice of mindfulness meditation, is we're, you know, in that formal time every day where we're sitting for thirty minutes, as many times as we can remember, 
we practice taking refuge, Buddha knowing Dhamma, expressing Sangha. This heart, or whatever you want to call this mind-body thing here, this is naturally waking up knowing the way that it is. And that's something to recognize. And when that's really seen clearly, that there is this wakefulness knowing the way that it is, and when we see that as a natural, inherent process, not personal, it's really nature, when we see it deeply, then beautiful qualities start to naturally arise. Qualities of patience and kindness and forgiveness and fearlessness and steadiness and clarity. I can't make these qualities manifest, but if I come into the moment in this deep and natural way, then, lo and behold, all these beautiful qualities that we all respect when we recognize them in another person, they just start to manifest more and more in our lives. And then then we start to really trust our heart. We have more faith not because we think something is true, but because we're directly experiencing something that's really beautiful and good. A good in the sense of not harming. That's protecting. Uh, one of my teachers in the past is this woman, Sarah Doring, and uh, she's retired now. But she was one of the teachers at IMS in the Forest Refuge out in Massachusetts, and uh, originally from Minnesota. And she wrote an article about the five spiritual powers, she called it. It's this uh, teaching from the Buddha, sometimes called the five spiritual faculties. And it's describing this engine of awakening, where uh, we have some, initially we have to have some inspiration, some faith. It might be just a real superficial faith, like you hear a good talk and you're going to check out mindfulness practice because it made a lot of sense, but you don't really have any of your own experience. But there's some seed of faith or confidence that maybe there's something here, and that's energizing, right? When we have that initial seed, we're inspired to check it out. And that's effort. And effort leads to mindfulness, right? It takes effort to be mindful because Our habit now is to be distracted, to be caught up in our thoughts, disconnected in that way. So a seed of faith leads to some effort, enough effort to actually turn the heart toward the present moment, toward the way it is, that Buddha-knowing Dhamma. And that continuity of mindfulness quiets things down because when I'm present, then I'm not involved in neurotic activity that agitates the mind. When I'm worrying about the past or worrying about the future, my mind gets agitated. When I'm just mindful of the present, things settle down and we experience concentration. That's the fourth. When the mind is steady and calm and clear, that's concentration, then the mind sees things as they are. It wakes up a little bit. And that reinforces faith. So that's that engine. Faith leads to energy. Energy then is applied to mindful awareness, the continuity of mindfulness, which leads to calming, the the clarity of mind that comes from the calm, non-agitation. 
which that in that clarity we the mind the heart sees things as they are wakes up about the nature of things like how impersonal it all is how free it all is alive it all is and that leads to more faith arising more confidence in the present moment in the inherent goodness or beauty or freedom here and now so she this article is about all five of these qualities but i just want to read a little bit of what she says about faith in this article on the five spiritual powers or faculties and this she she gave this talk at a retreat i was at in 1999 a three-month retreat the ims they have a three-month retreat every fall a number of people in the community have gone out for one or more of those retreats it's kind of a real institution in the vipassana meditation scene here in the states so she begins this section on faith by saying it's a rather suspect word these days because of we associate faith with fundamentalist religions you know you can be a fundamentalist buddhist or muslim or christian or jew so it's not exclusive to any particular religion but that's not the way she's using the word faith she says but faith in the sense that i want to speak of tonight has nothing to do with force it has nothing to do with conventional belief and this is the sentence i think is useful it's an innocence of conviction an open heart that is not afraid to trust an innocence of conviction an open heart that's not afraid to trust and this is interesting like when you get the instruction from me or from somebody to open to the present moment you know and when when you get that instruction to open to the present moment one of the first things we notice is that sitting is like this because right? the experience of the body this embodiment experience is so front and center and so immediately as we then follow the instruction we open to the body sitting the sensations here and now it's so easy to mistrust that like why would this be important it's not even pleasant you know why should i give myself why should i relax into the experience of embodiment the body the sensations right it's not easy to trust it so the innocence of conviction meaning we're not expecting anything we're, we're not looking for some you know you know how we think the beautiful sunset there must be god there you know because of the colors and the sun shining through the clouds and it's not that kind of mystical experience when we open to the body sitting or to hearing or to to the here and now right we might feel a heartache from a difficult interaction we had 10 hours ago let alone you know 2 years ago all that leftover emotional pain that's just slightly below the surface just waiting for the mind to be slightly present so that we feel it so that's one of the reasons we stay distracted is we just don't want to feel the body and we don't want to feel the leftover emotional vibration from all of the pain the loss the difficult interactions we've had over the years because often it's that's what's there not too far below the surface so can we have this innocence of conviction an open heart that's not afraid to trust and she goes on and so can move beyond the known and that's the key because the known is what our mind is constructing over and over again and if we're going to have freedom from the known freedom from our constructions we have to trust 
the here and now, whatever that is. It doesn't matter actually what it is. It's the trusting that's transformative. That's what it is. It's not about like, oh, the body is so special, or the sounds I'm opening to are so special. It's the integrity of the opening, the trusting, the non-fear. That's what's so transforming. She goes on, she says, it senses the possibility of transcendence, that what seems to be isn't all there is. It senses that there's some profound human possibility to be realized, even though it's not immediately apparent. Such faith is born in experience. It cannot be given. It arises spontaneously out of seeing and knowing for oneself. From it flow devotion and gratitude and commitment, It's a natural self-giving. It stems from knowing the problematic nature of life, from realizing that human existence is very imperfect. Because of this, one is sensitive to what else might be, to some other way of being. And I like this too, because even though she says, you know, we wake up to the problematic nature of life from realizing human existence is very imperfect, But the way the heart can open to the imperfections of life can be quite beautiful. And maybe we could even say perfect. The heart is capable of opening completely. Perfectly is a tricky word, so I'll use the word completely or fully. This heart, this mind, can open fully to the present moment in a beautiful way. So... It doesn't matter if this life or whatever this is, is problematic or imperfect. What matters is, how is the heart relating to it? Is it opening to it fully? Or is it out of fear, out of greed, holding back, closing down, hiding behind its constructions, its ideas about things? And therefore, always missing life and always responding, not from life, but from our ideas about life. And that's always a misfit. It never quite works when I'm living and responding or reacting based on the constructions of my mind. Like if you have some idea that you're not really that good and you've ruined your life or you've missed your opportunity or you could be so much better than you are. If you have that construction going on a lot of the time, then just imagine what how many of your choices that you're making in life are affected by that view, that idea? Or if you think you're better than everybody else, and then that's affecting your choices in life. Or if you think a life is a setup, a big betrayal, you know, and uh, you're really bitter about it. Well, that affects how we relate, what we say, what we do. Or you have some kind of rosy superficial notion that it's all fine, it's all fine, and if people are suffering, it's because they just don't got their act together. And That has implications too, living out of that view. So the question is, you know, and we'll open it up for discussion in, a, in just a minute. So the question is, well, how do we open to the moment fully in this beautiful, transforming way. Instead of waiting for the perfect moment, like when the moment's perfect, well, then I'll open to it. You know, we have that perfect meditation on some Caribbean beach, you know, where the sun isn't too bright, but it's not too cool. And, you know, there are 
the sunset has just the right number of clouds, you know, and the breeze is just right, and we're not worrying about coconuts falling on us. But there are the coconut trees, and we're hearing the rustle, the wind blowing through the palm fronds, and you know that. Oh yeah, and then oh yeah, I'll be real tranquil then, and I'll really understand how fundamentally peaceful everything is. But if things are fundamentally peaceful and beautiful and and free, then they have to be here and now, in our messy lives, in Minnesota, <laughs> you know, with all the body's imperfection and the mind's imperfections. There's a great line, uh, most of you I'm sure have heard it at one point, because it's been around many, many times, Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese, and near the end of that poem she says, you don't have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And this isn't in Buddhist terms, of course, this poem, but you get the sense that you know, what does she mean by you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves? I think, I think she's pointing to something about our practice that's so natural. Like, when I have a construction about I'm really distracted, I have to work really hard to be mindful in order to become enlightened and free and overcome my habits of fear and greed and, you know, all my other bad habits. That construction is really oppressive and it doesn't lead to mindfulness. It leads to worry, it leads to judgment, to comparing mind, it leads to all sort of other neurotic tendencies. So when we hear that line, letting the soft animal, the soft animal of your body love what it loves, it's just reminding us, well, maybe this opening to the present moment is the most natural thing. Even though it's not our habit, because we have a lot of bad habits, you know, like to be distracted. But maybe underneath all those bad habits, there's a basic, almost like gravitational pull to being present. Can we find that ancient, inherent gravitational pull where we're noticing how natural, how simple it is to be present and not mistrust it? Because when we mistrust, what do we do? We go back to what's already known, which is thinking. Well, let me think about the practice some more. As opposed to, you know, just the settling. And this doesn't require that we're even silent. You can be doing this right now as you're listening to a talk. You know, in the context of being here, hearing, thinking, you know, what what would it be to more fully settle and trust the way it is? Because sometimes when we're hearing a talk or listening to something, there's a, I mean, it's subtle, but there's a little desperation to want to grasp the meaning, not want to lose it. Or we're struggling to, to prove to ourselves why it's stupid what the person is saying. You know, but we're, there's this sort of competition or struggle going on, but we don't need to struggle. Often, like, uh, I've had teachers that would say, when you're listening to a Dharma talk, like, a, like tonight, instead of trying to get it, you just meditate. Now, meditate doesn't mean, like, focus your attention on something. It just means abiding in the here and now. And the mind will either comprehend the words that are being heard or it won't. 
but you're not constructing a somebody who wants to comprehend the talk. Comprehension will happen or it won't happen. It will happen to whatever degree it happens. And, and the heart is okay with whatever comprehension happens. And either the mind, the heart is integrating what's being comprehending or it's not integrating. But you don't have to construct the person who's going to comprehend and then integrate the ideas that are being comprehended. See, it's a different, it's a different way. And like going home in a few minutes tonight, you could construct the somebody that, that has to get yourself home, or you could just let it, you could just instead take refuge in the present moment, and as you're abiding in the present moment, you will notice whether you make it home or not. <laughs> you know, does the desire to stand up arise? Oh, there's that desire to stand up. Oh, look, the body's actually standing up, you know, and walking and interacting. So we don't have to lose present moment awareness just because we're interacting with other human beings or raising children or going through our jobs. Obviously, it's more challenging than sitting in a quiet space and being aware of the breath going in and out. So we practice with really simple experiences like breathing, like sitting, like walking. But the idea is to do it all day long. But initially, it requires that seed of faith, that willingness to trust the present moment, to trust the relaxing, the easing into the here and now, as opposed to feeling you've got to do something first. You know, it's like, more than anything, we practice postponement. Let me do this. Let me get my body, my posture together. You know, oh, yeah, i got to solve this problem, and then I'll... So it's always like we can just step back and notice, oh, this is the present moment. Thinking that I should be thinking this thought is how it is now. Well, can this be okay? So I'll leave it here. We have ten minutes or so. It'd be nice to hear from people. Any questions, of course, but also any experiences you've had related to what I've been talking about or just generally related to the practice that you want to bring up. It's nice to say your name if you do have something to say. So what comes to mind? I have something to say, Mark, about when Anne... Um, <laughs> about forgiveness and the idea of expectation that I will be able to be fully present alive in every moment seems um, unachievable to me. And that it seems like the part of me that is constructing images in a story, oh, I wasn't awake, you know, that part of me is a part of uh, my existence. And as I'm mindful, I feel like I can grow bigger parts, but I mean, you wrote that speech, right? I mean, you had to conceptualize what you were going to say a little bit. Not that you wouldn't want to be in the moment delivering it and having thoughts occur to you, but I know, like, if you work, work on a book, you know, I wish I wish the first draft was the same as the ninth draft, but they're each they each have different problems. So I guess my issue here is the expectation that I, as a human being, will just, this practice will come through me and I will, I will be so trusting that I'll just be here a lot. And uh, I don't know, I just feel like actually the practice is forgiving myself for not being here mostly. That's what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, but before that moment of forgiveness... The mind, the heart had to catch the present moment reality of being disconnected. And then that's the cause for the forgiveness. You know, compassion arises 
because the heart sees the way that it is. All the beautiful qualities. This is the Sangha, the third refuge. The Buddha knows Dhamma, and out of that integrity arises Sangha, the beautiful qualities like forgiveness. So whenever you notice a beautiful quality like patience or forgiveness or kindness or fearlessness, uh, whatever it might be, you'll notice that there was a moment, because that beautiful response, if it's truly a beautiful response, beautiful responses come from that integrity of the heart seeing the way that it is. So when we catch ourselves being neurotic, then we forgive ourselves. But that's a moment of mindfulness. Seeing that the mind is caught in a neurotic way, that's mindfulness. That's not being neurotic. It was neurotic a moment before you caught yourself. In the moment you're seeing it, that's, that's exactly, that's called practicing, right? So if you're catching this, Anne, then you're practicing. If you're noticing unnecessary struggling, you must be practicing. It's when you don't think you're suffering, when you don't think you're neurotic, <laughs> then there's a problem. <laughs> Other thoughts come to mind. Yeah. Abutra, I have been practicing for three years, and I, I would like to, to share an observation. Um, it becomes more, more clear to me how this path has no end, that you just keep practicing. Because uh, while I've gained some insights and I've been able to let go uh, some cravings and aversions, new ones arise. For example, <laughs> as, as I'm aware of my own ignorance, I also become acutely aware of ignorance of others close to me. Without naming names. <laughs> and I've developed um, feelings of superiority because I'm on a path, I'm practicing, and the person is not, and uh, I become judgmental. So I, I have to work on these, on these things, you know, the, the new, the new the cravings, new aversion myself, so it's just ongoing, yeah. never-ending. Yeah, but, you, but you're on the path, Utra, and that, the way you described is really common because there are two, like I mentioned the five spiritual faculties earlier, but even a more simple version of that engine is we're doing things, like in the practices that we do, we're doing things that increase sensitivity, and we're doing things that increase understanding. And there, these two things are related, but they, it's nice to talk about them separately as an engine. And sometimes the sensitivity gets ahead of the wisdom, and sometimes the wisdom gets ahead of the sensitivity. And when the wisdom gets ahead of the sensitivity, it's somebody who knows all the answers, but doesn't really practice. And, and that's a certain kind of arrogance. You know, they, they got an answer for everything, but they haven't integrated their intellectual understanding. When sensitivity gets ahead of wisdom, then what happens is somebody is sensitive to everything, but their heart doesn't know how to hold what they're seeing. And that's kind of what I hear you saying. And this is very common for people who are relatively good at concentration, which I know you are. And so when you, because concentration, the stillness, 
develops a lot of sensitivity. Like, on the one hand, it's very pleasant when you're in that really calm, tranquil place. But what happens in that stillness then is the whole system becomes very refined. So anything gross really stands out. So as you go back out into the world, it's like you're just so sensitive to everything that's rough and gross and uh, out of sorts. And it's like you don't know what to do with it. You, you want to like run back to your practice or go to a quieter place where people behave themselves and are perfect. <laughs> but that's not how the world is. And this is why it's good. This is how it corrects itself. Because when sensitivity gets ahead of wisdom, it becomes unbearable to be in the world. And so the only way to survive is to emphasize the wisdom, help the wisdom catch up with the sensitivity. And so to reflect on some of the teachings here, like uh, it's impersonal. So when you see the person who's rough, who, you know, doesn't seem to know what they're doing in life, then instead of seeing them as a person, you're just seeing them as nature, doing the best they can, innumerable causes and conditions. There isn't a somebody behind those bad actions that you're seeing. You may be seeing things very clearly, but you have to you have to go even deeper and see that even though it's correct on a relative sense to say that their actions are unskillful or that they could be better, you're missing that it's also nature, that it's a perfect, lawful expression of those causes and conditions. It couldn't be other than what it is right now. And what that does is it brings out the compassion. And you learn how to be fearless in the midst. Like when sensitivity is higher than uh, wisdom, we feel that our sensitivity, the, the calm, can be contaminated. And so we're afraid of who might contaminate our ease, our steadiness, our peacefulness. But when wisdom catches up, then we're not afraid of messiness. Because what wisdom teaches us is this peace is inherent. It can't be stained. It can't be taken away. That's what the real refuge is. So it's a totally natural place. We always get out of balance. Some people more this way out of balance. Some people tend to be more out of balance in this way. But being out of balance, if we just keep practicing, just exactly as you described, Uttara, your sensitivity will cause you to reflect, okay, why is this such a problem? This can't be right. And then you'll hear a teaching, you know, that says, oh yeah, that's right. That judgment, that's the stain. His or her bad behavior isn't the stain. The real stain is believing that I have to protect myself from their behavior. Because their behavior is just the expression of nature. Thanks for bringing that up. It's, that's an important point. I think we have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. So we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. With uh, innocence of conviction open heart that trusts, not afraid to trust. And we may, may we all model this awakening leading onward to great peace and love and wisdom. May our lives be causes for peace in our hearts and in the world.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.